I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, experts tell House lawmakers Medicaid expansion could boost the state's economy. Then, voting rights advocates campaigning for improved, more accessible elections in Mississippi. Plus, a new book shares the story of a black man lynched in police custody, a Mississippi sheriff, and a woman seeking the truth about her family's background. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A group of experts tell the State House Medicaid Committee expanding the program under the Affordable Care Act would benefit the economy. That's according to the Hilltop Institute, a nonpartisan research center in Baltimore. Morgan Henderson is the principal data scientist with the group. He walked lawmakers through an economic impact study that covers the first five years after expansion. What have other states found that have expanded Medicaid? What have they found in terms of enrollment? What have they found in terms of cost offsets, in terms of net budgetary costs? And so we're seeing that uh, Arkansas, which expanded with its private option, it's, it, uh, it's estimating net budgetary savings of $97 million as of uh, fiscal year 2020. Louisiana, which expanded in July 2016, they're estimating net budgetary savings in the order of $16 million. Kentucky, which expanded early in January 2014, they're, they're estimating net budgetary savings. And I'd like to mention, in addition to these states, there have been several uh, Medicaid expansion studies in Mississippi, two of which were released, again, late 2021, and there's more information about this later in the presentation. And there have been maybe seven or eight over the years, which we summarize in a table later in the, in the presentation. This study, like many of the other studies about Mississippi Medicaid expansion, would estimate around 200,000 new enrollees as a result of of Medicaid expansion. Of these 200,000 or or so, the vast majority, 95% or thereabouts, would be newly covered individuals, that is, childless adults under 138% federal poverty levels who are not currently eligible, or caretaker adults over 27% federal poverty, up to 138. So again, folks who are not currently eligible. 
Following the meeting, Henderson told our Will Stribling if Medicaid were to be expanded in Mississippi, it could generate an additional 11,000 jobs per year. Medicaid expansion in Mississippi would be very meaningful and impactful. Uh, There's a lot of folks who struggle with um, health issues to low-income state, and so I think that it would potentially help about 200,000 people um, to be happier, healthier, and more productive. One of the main criticisms lobbied uh, by anti-expansion folks in the past few weeks have been about the underestimating the number of, of, of enrollees uh, and that, uh, you know, there would be a massive exodus of people leaving private insurance to get on Medicaid. I did, did believe that has just not been reflected in other uh, expansion states. Uh, so I was just hoping y'all could uh, uh, speak, speak on that as far as y- y'all know with the research you've done. Yeah, certainly. Um, there's no evidence that this will happen in large scale if Mississippi were to expand Medicaid. Um, there would likely be a small amount of folks transitioning from, say, the uh, individual marketplace, uh, but we, we, we think we've uh, correctly factored this into our model. So you know, we, we don't think there's any reason to believe this will happen in Mississippi. Y'all's study was based off just clean expansion. Um, uh, in both chambers, uh, they have said that uh, the Mississippi version will include uh, work requirements and um, a uh, some sort of individual contribution, although we don't know what that will look like in terms of copays versus premium. What um, I know that um, that that uh, that some states have gotten work waivers or in, 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 um, involved in individual contributions. Do y'all have have y'all seen any data on the the effects that those additional requirements had on um, on enrollees and just yeah in the program overall? So. Um the imposition of anything like work requirements or any premiums or cost sharing, it, it would likely mute potentially dramatically the positive economic effects of expansion. Uh, there's a lot of research to show even very small premiums really deter individuals from taking up um, health insurance. And so we, uh, we, the federal government hasn't been approving these kinds of things uh, with the Biden administration. Uh, but but we believe that it um, it would probably mute and dampen the positive economic impacts if it were put into place in Mississippi. In those cases, is it primarily uh, healthy people that are dissuaded from from enrolling because it's like okay, I'm I'm healthy now, I don't, you know I don't want to pay these extra costs. But then the the goal of the whole program right, is to keep the, keep those people healthy and prevent you know long term very very expensive medical costs from incurring because of uh, you know things falling under the radar. Yeah, that's, that's what the research tends to indicate. Yeah. yeah. That's Morgan Henderson, principal data scientist with the nonprofit research center Hilltop Institute. The House and Senate have both filed bills expanding parts of the Medicaid program. Conservative lawmakers say the measure should be designed in a way to benefit the state's working poor. In the Senate, their bill is a placeholder to be amended once both chambers have worked together to figure out what should be in it. Republican Missy McGee of Hattiesburg chairs the House Medicaid Committee. We are seeking information right now to make the best policy decisions that we can. And so um, we were really happy to have this study, which I have found is consistent with other studies as well. And um, so we'll, t- we'll just take this information as we um, go into, uh, you know, discussing legislation to address these issues. More details on what a Medicaid bill would include are expected to be made public in the coming days.
Coming up, voting rights activists campaigning for improved and more accessible elections in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville. However you want, radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A coalition of voting rights groups want more transparency and participation in statewide elections. Nasambi Lambright-Haynes is executive director of One Voice, a nonprofit voter engagement group based in Jackson. She says their concerns extend beyond Hines County, as many registered voters are now at risk of being purged from voter rolls under a law signed in 2023. The first thing that we're going to continue to do is get copies of the inactive voter rolls from every county. We have also reached out to the Secretary of State's office, who, of course, has the entire inactive voter roll for the entire state. Uh, We have not heard back from the Secretary of State yet. So we are attempting um, to get these lists of inactive voters for every county. And we're working with our partners um, through the Mississippi Engage table um, to get folks back on the rolls. And so that's our uh, main objective. Um, And as we stated earlier, the lists are all over the place. So as uh, Danielle Holmes stated, she actually sorted through the Hines County list, which did not determine you know, who was deceased from who was inactive because of a disenfranchising felony and other causes. So some of the list, um, it it takes a lot of time to determine why they are purged. So um, as we get the list and see what type of um, work that has to be done on the list, then, you know, we'll be able um, to work with um, folks who are eligible to get back on the voter rolls and for those folks who may even be um, disenfranchised um, to even help some of those folks to get back on um, the rolls if if they um, want to get back on the rolls. The law allows for the purging of state voting rolls. A voter would have to forego voting in any election or not show up for jury duty for about four years. Additionally, the voter would have to not respond to a letter concerning their registration status for another four years before being removed. Voting rights advocates say the law shouldn't exist and introduces additional confusion to the voting process. Danielle Holmes, who you heard the uh, zombie speak about is with the Poor People's Campaign and part of the coalition demanding better protections for voters. Getting to the ballot box can often be difficult, she says, for low-income Mississippians, and the law disproportionately affects them. Imagine what happens when poor and low-income voters go to the polls attempting to vote, yet their names are not on the voting rolls. We have been attacked or questioned by our um, Secretary of State here in Mississippi. 
as to any evidence of troubles with elections, voting rolls, and our evidence is in November's election. That was all the evidence that the community needed. And if you needed to see any information, it was clear. It is time for Mississippi One to make sure that its election commissioners are properly trained, not just in Hines County, but across the state of Mississippi. It is time out for questioning community when these questions arise or issues arise as it relates to voting here and having access to voting and the proper amount of ballots in each precinct. We can no longer sit by and remain silent as if it doesn't matter. November's election was lost, but that could have very well been an election that went in a different direction. Mississippi is on the brink of change, and we can't continue to allow our extremist state leaders to implement laws or either to intentionally not educate those who are responsible for elections here in the state of Mississippi, and we end up with a mess like we did in November. Coming up, a new book shares the story about a black man lynched in police custody a Mississippi sheriff, and a woman seeking the truth about her family's history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. Thanks to our sustaining members, who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The author of a book says her family told her her grandfather in 1947 who was a Mississippi sheriff, protected a black male from being lynched while in custody. But when Grace Elizabeth Hale decided to read more into those family folklore stories, she found out that wasn't true at all. In her new book, In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning, she recounts her own experience researching how her grandfather played a role in the lynching of Versi Johnson. She's the special guest at Today's History is Lunch at two Mississippi museums in Jackson at noon. Hale speaks with our Kobe Vance about the book. So my book, In the Pines, uh, is my attempt to get to the bottom of a story that I grew up with in my family about uh, my grandfather, uh, who was a sheriff in Jeff Davis County, and what was described in my own family as an act of heroism uh, as his protecting a black man uh, that was being held in his jail from being taken out of that jail by a white mob. I realized when I was a graduate student many years ago that the story that I, that I had grown up with could not possibly be true. Uh, but I will admit that that's where I left it uh, until uh, recently when I, about five, six years ago, when I went back to research exactly what happened. And this book is the story of the man that my grandfather was involved with killing, Versi Johnson, and um, what I found out about exactly what happened that day, that, that my grandfather was not a hero, but that he was part of a, of a violent sequence of events that 
I'm not going to describe here because the book is written as a narrative. And so to, you know, to get to the end of the story, I want to leave that suspense. But um, it is a history of rural Jeff Davis County in, across the 20th century, as well as a history of what happened on one summer day in 1947. You are now a scholar in uh, the culture of white supremacy. I wanted to get your thoughts on how that played into your doing research on your grandfather and uh, the man who was killed. Well, that is um, in part why I decided to do this, uh, because I have spent my career specializing in the history of the South and have done a great deal of research on the history of white supremacy, of Jim Crow segregation, and of racial violence. And so it seemed to me sort of uh, to be untenable not to dig into this story. Uh, But that history really undergirds the story. The story really has two main characters, my grandfather and Versi Johnson, uh, an African-American man uh, who grew up in Lawrence and Lincoln counties and then ended up in Jeff Davis County. Uh, And so I tell their stories and I also give the story of the larger community of the black community in the Piney Woods region and particularly in Jeff Davis County. And and this might be a little bit, uh, this might sound a little counterintuitive, but despite Jim Crow segregation, that is in many ways a flourishing community. And I don't think most people, if they don't have roots in those places, don't know about that history of black farm ownership, um, a black independent college and school called the Prentice Institute, and really a thriving uh, to the to the limits of Jim Crow segregation, a flourishing black community there. And it's really important to know that because when acts of racial violence occur, they are absolutely attacks on individuals, in this case, Percy Johnson, but they're also attacks on communities and often on black success. Now, I know you mentioned you don't want to get into the full details, but how did you break the seal, so to speak, on uh, just beginning your investigations? This is um, a history. Uh, This is a work of narrative nonfiction. It's very much a story, but uh, it is uh, a true story. And so I just want to emphasize that. But the way that I was able to find out what happened, 1947 is a long time ago, was to talk to every single person I could find who would talk to me. And eventually I was able to find a black man who had lived his whole life in Jeff Davis County, Mitchell Gamblin. And he remembered what had happened and was able to tell me what the black community knew about what had happened and also to report what um, eyewitnesses had seen. And so that that was key. The other key was doing research in local records. So I spent a great deal of time working in the chancery clerk's office and other local records in Jeff Davis County to find the traces of this event. And what I found was that while white people would often lie in the newspaper, they didn't lie in the Board of Supervisors minutes and in the account books. And so you could follow the money, and that would help you to to figure out what happened. How do you think your story is able to paint a bigger picture for other untold stories that might be out there about racial violence and other things that happened throughout Mississippi's history? The way that I have written this story will allow many readers who might not necessarily read history to have access to it. It very much is not an academic work of history. And so in that sense, it will bring this history to a broader audience. 
But it's also really, in a lot of ways, a history of this one small place, Jeff Davis County, across the 20th century. And one, I think, major take it away of that story is what is how white people were willing to destroy the world that they had built in order to keep from integrating uh, that world in, in order to keep uh, black Americans from having access to uh, public schools and other public facilities. And that that is a story of a lot of economic um, decline in the rural Deep South, not just in Mississippi, that much of that decline is um, in part because white people have purposefully destroyed what was there so as not to have to integrate it in the 1950s and 60s. How important do you think it is to challenge the beliefs that have been handed down through families about the way the past may have been, especially in a case where you describe that your family told one story that was so vastly different than the truth? Well, I think that it's very important because history isn't, you know, everybody has a history, but you don't get to choose what it is. History is fact. That's what really happened. And you don't get to choose that. And so I think that it's important for people to realize that your family memories of closeness or love for particular family members do not in any way negate other larger factual histories that your family members may have been involved with. I mean, many families uh, love and care for members who have done um, things that are, that are not things that we would praise. This is not uh, an uncommon experience. And to hang on to these kinds of myths of innocence, I think, really makes it impossible for us to figure out how to achieve equality in the present. Grace Elizabeth Hell is the author of In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning. She'll be speaking at today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. That's at noon. Grace, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for talking to me today. Coming up, how children can understand the risks and prevent measures for germs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Rest, drink water, take medicine. These are a few ways humans try to fight off germs, right? Other species have other tricks. An Alabama author set out to learn more in her latest children's book. Mary Scott Hodgins with the Gulf States Newsroom spoke with the writer about what she discovered. Heather Montgomery spends a lot of time thinking about animals. So during the pandemic... It dawned on me that every species had survived a pandemic at one point. And I wondered how. That inquiry became the subject of her new book, Sick, The Twist and Turns Behind Animal Germs. It's a series of stories about how animals fight off all kinds of pathogens, how chimpanzees get rid of parasites, how alligators combat deadly bacteria. Montgomery was especially curious about... Vultures. How in the world does a vulture not vomit? I mean, literally, they're putting their head in dead, decaying, disgusting stuff. So she looked into it. Chapter 5, Buzzard Buddies. 
Gary Graves put on his gown, gloves, and goggles. He grabs the chapter, like all chapters in the book, follows the work of a real scientist. Montgomery details how he formed a hypothesis and how he looked for clues. Gary was searching for bacteria on or in vulture bodies to answer one burning question. Why don't vultures get sick? The topics in the book can get complicated, so Montgomery uses comic strips to help tell the story. She says the nitty-gritty science is the fascinating part. And I'm not really scared to, to share with kids the complex things because kids are smart. One of the most interesting things Montgomery learned during her research is the surprising benefit of microbes, how they can help species adapt. I never really thought about it that basically germs drive evolution. Blew my mind, really. Montgomery loves getting people excited about science. I don't want to answer it all, right? I want to leave questions because we're curious people and that's fun. Mary Scott Hodgen, WBHM. Sick, the twists and turns behind animal germs is available now. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. And WBHM is one of them in Alabama. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.